All right, everybody. It's time once again for your favorite podcast. It's The Score, Minnesota Opera's deep dive into classical music, opera, pop culture, as seen through the lens of three blackity black 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 folks. I am your blackity black 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 host, Rocky Jones, uh, the EDI director here at Minnesota Opera. As always, I am here with my two wonderful, talented co-hosts. First up, the VP of Impact, the incredibly talented and smart Mr. Lee Bynum. Hello, Lee. Howdy. How you doing? Oh, not too bad. How are you? How are you? Um, I'm okay. I'm okay. Just had quite a... Oh, what is that? <laughs> it's the fox hunt. <laughs> Charge. <laughs> and speaking of foxy, oh, see what I did there? See what I did there? <laughs> it's our access and civic engagement manager, Paige Reynolds. Hi. How's hey. it going? Hello. How you doing? Good, good, good. <laughs> Y'all, it's a big day for a number of reasons, but. It's our first birthday. Yay. Can you believe it? We're, we're one, one year old. We're a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> we're crawling at this point, right? We're crawling. Crawling and hopefully saying dada or mama or something like that. Um, but that's so wild that we've been doing this for a year. I'm so proud of us. I'm so proud of me and my ADHD that I was able to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so cool. I'm just so happy that we we get to do this. And for our first anniversary, we've got all sorts of things going on later on in the show. We will have um, a uh, an interview with Nina Yoshida Nelson, who is one Woo-hoo. of the co-founders of the a- Asian Opera Alliance and an amazing singer. Um, but right here at the top of the show, we might as well get into it. Um, we have the man who signs all the checks. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just playing. Um, our boss, our friend, um, the incredible president and general director of Minnesota Opera. Finally, after a year, we were <laughs> able to wrangle him <laughs> onto, the, onto the pod. Uh, Mr. Ryan Taylor, welcome to the show, Ryan. Hello, hello. <laughs> happy anniversary, folks. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we're so happy to have you on the show today, especially because the landmark 60th season of, uh, you know, well, of Minnesota Opera <laughs> um, has been, was just announced. Um, you know, the shows that are, that are going to be at, um, on our main stages uh, next year, which is super exciting. Um, and so I just was wanted to give you the opportunity to talk to the people about this season and why perhaps they should subscribe, what's gonna be on it, what's like, what are you super excited about, about next season? I mean, this is gonna sound really uh, simple, but the fact that you said main stages that bit's cool um because i you know i trained here as in the resident program and and i adore the work that we do at the ordway and the the way that that space has changed over time and continues to change 
Um, I, it's a great space to sing in as an artist, and it's somewhere that uh, I I just I have a really soft spot for the Ordway, and having the new center right next door to us in the North Loop gives us an opportunity to do a different kind of creative exploration. And I think that's being able to balance both of those um, is exciting. That's that's exciting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we're, we're starting off with Edward Tulane, right? Edward Tulane, which was, uh, you know, maybe one of, uh, on one hand, the my least favorite memories of being uh, an opera mm -hmm. administrator was canceling Edward Tulane mm -hmm. um, in March of 2020. Um, brilliant new piece uh, by Paolo Prestini and Mark Campbell and just a delicious cast of artists. And and because it's really a story about uh, about imagination and childhood and and I have felt strongly that those are, we need more of those stories right now <laughs> to just try and touch base with our inner kid, you know? Um, so starting with Edward Tulane and being able to bring that to the stage at the Ordway as we originally intended is gonna be pretty exciting. It is, because I, I mean, I remember that so well, you know, that the week of, you know, March 13th, 2020, you know, a day that will <laughs> live in infamy, but like that week just leading up to it. And I remember, I remember leaving the office on March 12th and turning to Eric and saying, I'm going to bring my, my laptop and my hard drive home just in case. <laughs> <laughs> and I, here we are, you know, two years later and, and what sticks in my memory is Edward Tulane and going down into BMS and like seeing all the sets and going upstairs and seeing all the costumes. And then like, just that feeling of like, oh my God, like what's going to happen? And just having all the trappings of Edward Tulane around us. So now to be able to like turn what was like sort of a traumatic memory. And I can, I can only imagine if it was traumatic for me, like for, all the artists mm -hmm. who were involved, I can only imagine. Um, but being able to turn that around into something, you know, joyous and happy to, you know, open up this momentous season is just. I feel like we just need it. There's a there was a moment because it was a couple months till I returned to the office for the first time under cloak and dagger and mask and you know everything else uh, during the pandemic. And it was my first time back in. I was, I took the back staircase, which is something not many people do, but there were still like rabbit footprints on the floor, <laughs> like cartoons of, of rabbits and bunnies on doorways and sticky notes with people's hand drawings of rabbits, like all the way through the building. And it just crushed me on that first visit to go back in and see all that. So the opportunity that we have now to sort of heal a little bit of that mm -hmm. um i think is is tremendous yeah and i do remember into our new space the luminary art center um and start to produce in a brand new way for minnesota opera with with ronaldo so um it's it's so different and so many things i know are coming at all of us in our various roles about uh what do we want to make of this space because it's brand new and and you kind of don't want to miss that moment of like capturing whatever it is that it could be and also knowing you're not going to hit it right with everything you do right out of the park whenever you do anything new so um it's a learning experience and and one that i think i'm i'm interested to see how we meet uh that moment 
I wonder if you can um, talk a little bit, maybe we can jump into where the opera has been <laughs> um, before, before this point, because I mean, I know we, the, with the opening of the arts center and with even before that, our, our charter informing so much of the anti-racism and anti-oppression work. Can you just talk about a little bit about like where the Minnesota opera has been and like, what are we reflecting on with the, with the 60th anniversary? Yeah, I, I had an opportunity this past weekend to, to talk to the board of another opera. They were doing a board retreat and um, it was me and three of my general director colleagues, and we'd been invited by the general director of that company. And the board had some questions for us about in each of your institutions, you know, how are you driving your EDIA work, your your access, your your um, equity, and and uh, you know, my colleagues looked at me and said, "Well, Minnesota Opera's been doing it the longest." of the four of us that are in this room. So they should go first. <laughs> and I said, well, we've literally been going first. Um, and it's it's both one of those things that we're happy that we were first and also like, why were we not doing this before? Um, and uh, and so I think it's, it's helpful to think about an anniversary season in terms of, you know, we're now five years into the, the work on the charter essentially. And so if I, I went back the other day, there's a long email chain I had from Rocky that sort of looked at the history of the charter and where it started with this sort of board resolution to study the fact that we wanted to do something and how would we move into that and what would that look like? And, and with the first version of the charter, now I look at it and some of the language feels like, gosh, we were like pre-K. <laughs> <laughs> equity and access pre-k division yeah no um, we really thought we had done something <laughs> in the moment good first yeah, yeah yeah exactly you were exactly. talking about you're a toddler you're it's your first anniversary <laughs> and we were learning to say dada mama um and now we're probably like a little bit of a punky teen um <laughs> and you know kind of think that we know what we're doing and still won't be there yet for a while, but have kind of an odd sense of self about it. So, um, so I'm happy that, that we're pushing forward. And it feels like, you know, each week we're finding another place that needs that light, you know? Hmm. We're finding another process, another system, another thought pattern that we just need to sort of shake a little bit. And sometimes you shake it and you go, that one's okay. And then other times you shake and you go, wow. Um, <laughs> so we need to back up like four or mm. five steps and, and really take some of this apart. And at the same time, understand we have a season and obligations and shows that have to open. And so what, what can we reasonably accomplish uh, as we continue this journey? And it's stepwise, it's not leaps forward um, as quickly as, as I think many of us would like, because it takes time to shake through all those things. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole lot of shaking going on at the company, I would say, in all kinds of areas. And I'd love to direct our attention a little bit 
to the art that we are making. Could you say a couple of words about what sorts of stories it is that are important for us to be telling right now and also in the future and maybe why you see it that way? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we, we talked some time ago when we first began our, our journey into discovery um, around, around anti-racism and anti-oppression about, um, and I've heard you say it on the score before, I think, but the idea of receiving and believing and sometimes uh, receiving is the tricky bit and sometimes believing is the tricky bit. And, um, and, they, and it doesn't always happen in the same pattern depending on what information you are receiving and what patterns of behavior and belief new information challenges to you and how you are emotionally tied to that work. But in general, I have found in each case that on the other side of the initial challenge, I've learned something. So. Mm. Um, for me, it's about figuring out as we are making decisions, uh, who, who's, who's not in the room? Who's, mm -hmm. Whose stories have we not yet heard? We have plenty of beautiful work by a small homogenous group of folks mm -hmm. that helped create this art form. But we haven't really pushed past that in a global way. Um, and so I think Part of that is shaking out what's next. Um, how do we expand the team of creators and who we think of as creators of opera? Um, yeah, I mean, it's somebody asked the other day, what are the, what are the limits? Or do you think there should be a limit on, uh, I think it was a reporter with Opera America was asking, what are the limitations on who, who you want to bring in? And I was like, I think that's the wrong question. I think <laughs> I think we need to be like out there trying to figure out who wants to be part of it and how that could work. And then in some cases it might, and in some cases it might not, but I don't think we should have limitations on who should be making the art. Um, I think then it's just about finding a navigable path. You know, we had a we had a residency with Akram Khan in November and one of the things that he kept talking about was, I wanna create something that honors the vocal training mm -hmm. that artists who have committed themselves to this craft have studied. And if I can make something that doesn't need them, then I won't feel like I have done enough with my art to meet that craft in the moment. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And because I didn't ask him to do that. That wasn't part of the, the deal, as it were. We just said, come and play with us and figure out what you want to do. So I think it's about pushing past what we think our limitations might be, and then figuring out, is there a, a navigable path? Um, and do we have the resources? Because sometimes we don't have either the physical or the human resources or the financial resources to accomplish every single project that we might find. But um, the discovery piece is what I think I'm most curious about. And that's really, you know, if there's one thing I can say about the Twin Cities and the arts community, there is uh, an instinct towards creative curiosity. Um, it's not always fulfilled in the way that we hope it might be, 
but the interest in figuring out what else is there is pretty strong in our community. Well, speaking of our community, I mean, one thing that I, you know, you and I have been working on this for a very long time, <laughs> it seems like. And, you know, when this, when all of this first started, when you first came to Minnesota Opera, you know, this was, you know, access and EDI and anti-racism, you know, perhaps all of that together, you know, wasn't the focus, <laughs> but it was certainly something that you came in and you were interested in shaking things up and changing things and changing the way that we do things. And so I'm curious as to sort of just, you know, why that's been so important to you over the course of your career and whether, you know, the events of the past two years, especially here in this community, you know, with COVID, with George Floyd's murder, with all the subsequent um, events that have happened, you know, has that changed um, anything for you? Has that, you know, changed your outlook, changed sort of the approach? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I was, a singer in this art form. And so it was interesting to me to be a purveyor of, uh, of storytelling through music and literally be using a, a voice. I wouldn't call it necessarily my voice, but mm -hmm. using the voice I had in service of this craft and having studied a, a particular style of, of ability that allows a human to make noise that carries over a significant number of instrumentalists, right? Because that's that is the study for us. And if you, if you've ever done anything with yodeling, this is a side topic, but like yodeling, I have yodeling. not. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. I mean, <laughs> well, impersonating the Ricola commercials, but other than that, there you go. <laughs> but that that style of singing emphasizes the break points when you have natural breaks in your vocal range opera tries to disguise it and make it look like you have this one voice and you can't tell when you're in your head voice or your chest voice and which is why when people use it super effectively it's sort of surprising and and awesome in a theater um but i went you know i as a singer i went through and i had a lot of really cool experiences and very rarely did i feel like i was using me like me as a person um, in the product. Um, and the further I got into the pattern and the more conversations I had with my friends who were artists from all over the world, I realized that that's more common. I, I was not alone in having that experience. Um, and it didn't mean that there weren't exceptions, which is what kept me in it as long as it, as long as I was. But if, if someone like me, who was uh, the owner of a lot of privilege based on who I, who I was born to and where I was born and what my melanin looks like, um, if those things landed on me and I felt like I was, I wouldn't say voiceless, but, but I was not, in command of my voice the way that I would have liked to have been. If that was my feeling, considering the, the layers of privilege that I 
own, um, what must that feel like for those that don't have those layers of privilege? And, and I, I have no comprehension because that's not my lived experience, but I, I can't imagine what that would be like, but I can't imagine it's favorable. <laughs> so I, so I think the, the process for me was when I get very specific and I think about my friends who are non-white or women or genderqueer uh, people working in an industry that, that I felt othered in for a long time. My whole goal was to try and make an environment where everyone feels healthier than the environments I experienced. So that's kind of been the driving force behind my interest in the work. And I think our language changes and our understanding of what, of what language means changes. But the goal is that those people sharing that space, I said something about this opening night of Anonymous Lover, but especially during the pandemic to ask creative spirits to put aside all of their emotions and mental you know trappings of the pandemic and their worry and their uncertainty and fear and anger and frustration of that we're having to deal with this still to put that aside and say now we want you to give of your creative spirit and allow your talent to lift our community um, so that they might find some joy and shared connection that takes a really special group of people to be willing to give. Because I know there are moments in my day and I was not on stage pouring my heart out uh, in Anonymous Lover, but I don't, I don't, I understand that they have found it, but I don't know how they found the space to give that gift uh, in that moment. And regardless of the fact that we pay them, that is not why they do it. So, yeah, I, th I think all of those things combined, how do, we, how do we celebrate those people that can make that gift and make that um, selfishly uh, in order for us as a, as a community to have a moment of beauty and distraction and, um, and hopefulness? That's beautiful. How we <laughs> support people who, <laughs> yeah, can bring us this this gift, and it's bringing me to um, a question about just the the artist um, that we that we choose to 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 bring that to bring that gift because that has <laughs> has changed in really noticeable ways too. Um, I mean, soon people will hear in our uh, in our interview with um, with Nina her talking about. Um, what it's like to be an Asian singer and, you know, only have certain roles and, you know, um, that just about talking about how just about all your roles are specifically cast or specifically written as an Asian person, but also talk about how that doesn't necessarily occur at, at Minnesota Opera and how we've got tried to, you know, get away from, from some of that. So I wonder if you could talk about what that transformation has, has been like and, and, and what has it taken, what, um, how are conversations different um, maybe with on, within the artistic team? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that, for, and I, I don't wanna speak for everyone that works on the team, but I can say from my perspective, a lot of my own learning and thought process has been 
the happy result of accidental lessons. <laughs> um, I, before I came to Minnesota, I was in Arizona and we invited an artist that I knew well, who's also been here in Minnesota, Karen Slack. We asked her to sing the role of Alice Ford in Falstaff, uh, which is a Verdi comedy based on Shakespeare. And I remember that she was phenomenal in the role, but about halfway through the rehearsal process, she was sitting with me in the theater, just in between rehearsals. And she said, why did you cast me in this role? <laughs> and I said, why, why wouldn't I have cast you in this role? And she said, well, the list of people who are black, who've sung Alice Ford is not long. And it's not something I ever thought that I would be offered. And uh, so I'm, I've just been thinking a little bit about why, why you did this. And I, I said, well, I thought about what the vocal demands of the writing are because it's challenging. It is as difficult as some of his very serious operas. And then I knew that I needed someone who was old enough to under to have a perspective on the world that we live in and someone who was naturally funny <laughs> um, because if you're not if you're a serious singer performing in a Shakespeare Verdi comedy that is not going to be fun for <laughs> anyone else <laughs> so, um, and Karen is accomplished but I don't think she takes herself that seriously when it comes to a project like this. Um, and she was willing to have fun and willing to be ridiculous, which made it so enjoyable for, the, for everyone that got to see her. So, you know, what I learned from that is that, that that one instance of me having a personal relationship with an artist like her meant that there were others that were having that experience to me. That's always what happens in my head when I have those conversations is, oh, here's someone who's actually said this thing out loud. What can I learn about that and apply it every time I'm thinking about casting or every time I'm thinking about um, roles? And then in recent years, as we've started to really look at the two sides of who's creating, who, who is or has created opera that we put on our programming. And given the fact that we now have the option of some new work, which is pretty much in its infancy in terms of, you know, what the sound of American opera will eventually be. You're, we're gonna have to zoom like two, three hundred, four years in advance to figure out what the future thinks American opera is because it's just so young still. Um, and then we also have a lot of inherited repertoire written by mostly old white men, they weren't old at the time, but now white men uh, with a certain level of privilege in society and how they viewed uh, things that, that society thought were either exotic or different. Mm. Um, and sometimes they're writing about their own experience and sometimes they're writing Sometimes they hit it by, like in um, Marriage of Figaro, was written about where the composer was at the moment, but he was, he had to set it somewhere else in order for it not to be censored. Um, so he said like, oh, it's in Spain. Like, no, that opera's not about <laughs> Spain. Um, it's, it's, anyway, you get the point. But now how do we choose after having 
decades and centuries of mostly white male interpreters of those inherited works, some of them are gonna be things that we wanna revisit. But do, can we find a different way to um, illuminate that story? Is there a different director, a gender, uh, a race, a cultural signal that, some, that a new director or a new conductor could find in order to connect us with this story in a different way? Um, some of that was, I guess it's been like, 10 or 12 years, there was a group, a high school group um, that Opera America asked to watch a bunch of different operas and operas that were, that were cast deliberately with many people of different hues in their skin, regardless of whether they were written 300 through 400 years ago or whether they were written a year ago, all of the high school kids thought that those were cool and modern because it's what their schools look like. It's what, their, it's what their lives look like. And they thought that was current. They could watch the same opera, Mozart, Verdi, Puccini, pick your Donizetti, cast with only white singers. And they view that as something of the past. Mm. So, mm. you know, all kinds, of, all kinds of complications as we're looking at this, what I call 3D Sudoku, um, <laughs> is what are the stories you're telling? How are you balancing the perspectives of creators with what you can afford to do and what you need to do to keep the company moving forward as you are making change. And then who is, who's illuminating not only the creative control of that production, but how are they incorporating the other artists? What are the tools in terms of the artists you are casting that you can provide so that those creative teams have, can paint in a different way? Um, it, I mean, it's, it's a lot and it's it fun, mm -hmm. but it, it does take much more concerted thought. I will say it's much more rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even though it takes more time and more energy and it's, you know, you're being that thorough and that detail oriented takes more time, but it is much more rewarding on the other side um, to see what's possible. Um, and it doesn't always work out the way that you intend. And sometimes it doesn't work out well. And sometimes it is better than anything you could have ever imagined, which is always a joy. Um, but it is different. And the, the sense of fulfillment is stronger, I find. Mm. And of all that, do you <laughs> feel is perhaps the biggest challenge? Because I look at, you know, sort of the industry as a whole. Um, and, you know, we sort of have this reputation perhaps as sort of being, you know, out in front, as you mentioned earlier. Um, what, what do you think people or other, other companies or even our company um, are sort of interpreting as the biggest challenge and sort of what is the opportunity there for, for growth? Hmm. There are many challenges, Rocky. Trying to <laughs> oh, 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 tell me about it. This, that's why. That's that is why you pay me, right? <laughs> to point all that out. <laughs> pick, pick your pick your favorite challenge. Um, I'm gonna say that what 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 I believe we require uh, of 
our team and that that's board and staff and artists and everything else is um is a depth of curiosity and um a generosity of spirit so allowing allowing for the fact that we are just because we're ahead doesn't mean that we know what we're doing <laughs> it doesn't mean that we have every answer knocked out it's it it means that we're willing to be in the space um and i think the biggest challenge is that we have so many community members family members with this opera group that come in and out they dip in and out of our work we we work in that building i mean we work in this space now but we work on our jobs 40 hours a week 50 hours a week whatever that's required but there are people who dip in for a show or there are people who come in to help with an ad campaign or there are people who come in to fix the toilets on the basement floor of the opera center and like those people are only with us for a moment while we are holding this very complex space open and so the challenge i think is how do we rejuvenate our energy and our willingness to be generous of spirit in all of those instances and with all of those people mm. um because it's just a diff it's a different um it's a different exercise uh, than coming to work and and knowing exactly what you have to do, whether it's whether you have a, an assignment that could be considered rote or whether you have a creative assignment or whether you have a particular skill set that you know exactly how to fix that plumbing. Um, and all you, you know, with everything else going on in your life, all you want to do is come in and fix the plumbing and go home. And that's okay but you're now in a space where we're trying to figure some stuff out and we're going to ask that if you're coming in you're willing to be in that space with us um and i i think that's hard because it's just disruption and we <laughs> we're not as a species really great with constant change it's so true it's so funny like literally like an hour ago I was having a very similar conversation with my therapist I feel like I've been saying that a lot lately <laughs> but like just how different our work has become whereas it used to just be like okay so you asked me to make a product here's the product give me money and praise thank you and now it's just it's so different you know yeah <laughs> my therapist tomorrow I I, I do it because <laughs> I need it halfway through the week to make it through the rest of the week um I like I, early in the week I, I I need to start my week off with a <laughs> with a gentle push <laughs> in the right direction highly recommend well I also don't want to give any of the other shows on the 60th season I know we kind of got a little bit sidetracked any short shrift but Ronaldo's at Luminary and then Daughter of the Regiment and then Song Poet which is exciting yeah, yeah. <laughs> so exciting and then what comes after that uh don, don giovanni. giovanni don giovanni yes of course which i think has been fired from a cannon on this very program <laughs> was it <laughs> was it oh no i kept don giovanni i know i did i kept john giovanni <laughs> it, 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 
but at least got fired by by a member of the squad. I'm not sure. Wow. I'm not sure how many, and I'm not going to go back and listen. Nobody's going to get on my carpet. It's a you know, it's it's fun to get to go through some of this. And I I had a conversation with someone who said, who heard who heard one of those episodes, and they were like, oh my gosh, we're never going to do. Blah blah blah. Yeah, I can't remember the offer that they. As if we have that much power. If I. (laughs) (laughs) They said, "Well, you know, the the score that's that's the Minnesota Opera podcast. So if they say it, that's what we have to do." And I was like, "The Minnesota Opera score podcast is like a new part of the conversation, Um, and it's it doesn't mean that all the other conversations stop. It means that." For a long time, you were only hearing a portion of the of what <laughs> we talked about, and now we're just willing to have the conversation. And um, and there are probably things that I mean, I I have shows that I have no interest in producing, and you know, I have the level of experience and background <laughs> that if I don't want to do a show, chances are we're not going to do that show. Um, <laughs> but I've also been proven wrong. I've been I've been. I've, I've had my mind changed by people and said, you know, we should examine this. Chief among them, the baby opera that we did a couple years ago, which I never <laughs> thought was going to be a thing. And I thought they were kidding when they presented it. And it was amazing. Um, so any, anyway, all that to say, um, I'm excited for all of those shows for different reasons. I think you know, in our in our history, we had a, a period that w- we were known as the Belcanto Opera Company and the technique at, that was required to sing that. No one, I hope, affiliated us with the Belcanto Company for the for the beautiful deep stories that some of the Belcanto <laughs> repertoire represents. <laughs> that doesn't exist. Um, they're all sort of silly because what people were trying to do is show the flexibility of the human voice so um but of all of the pieces that they've done some of which have been tremendous they've never done daughter of the regiment here and um and it's a show that is fun and i think one of the one of our guiding tenants for this coming season is that we wanted shows that were fun and magical and and lifted you out of the doldrums of what was ever happening in your everyday life for just a moment of respite. (laughs) Um, And so for that reason, I'm excited about Daughter of the Regiment and and the team that will be putting that together. And then, yeah, Song Poet, I I have to say, my my only reservation about Song Poet has been that there are certain stories that do not need music to be powerful. Mm -hmm. And Kalia's story is one of those that doesn't need music. Um, But then I think the question becomes, what do you you get to add? What, Mm -hmm. What can music bring that throws a different kind of seasoning or a different kind of connective tissue for people of different ages to interact with the story in a different way? And um, just the willingness that that Jocelyn had in talking with Kalia and B and wanting to use as much of that and, and inflect that into her compositional art, I've, I have found inspirational. So um, so I am excited to get to do Song Poet and, and in a different way than we originally conceived mm-hmm. it because we're doing everything these days slightly different <laughs> than we originally conceived anything. 
Um, so that just feels like a natural part of that, that creative process is journey. Um, and then to end up with a, with a show like Don Giovanni that I think, you know, our traditional audience may have certain expectations around and, and many of those expectations will be met. We're not going to set Don Giovanni on Mars. Um, it's going to be a fairly recognizable period sort of exploration. But the difference is the entire creative team, conductor, director, and every designer are women. Um, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know that we've ever had a fully creative team be all women before here i've had that in the past but but it shouldn't be surprising it shouldn't be out of the ordinary and um and yet <laughs> kind of is and certainly with this piece um and i was fascinated by what um katura who is the director for the don giovanni she when she approached this piece she said you know i always look when i'm starting to figure out a way through an opera who's left at the end mm -hmm. and in this case it's the three women who are who have interactions with Giovanni who are left at the end he his he gets dragged off to Hades but <laughs> the three women are still on stage and so their story continues and in her estimation she was like I'm interested as a as a director in understanding that this is that the story we are telling is the Don Giovanni chapter of the story of these three women's lives that then goes forward after that. Mm. So how does this give them a catapult to whatever is next in their individual journeys? And I <laughs> never heard a director say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what excites me is when somebody can come in the door and do something that is unexpected and takes us on a bit of a different journey with characters that we think we knew. Um, so anyway, that's that. Well, that, I mean, I'm sold. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, I mean, Ryan, um, you know, I think I can speak for, for all of us when I just say, I'm just thankful that I get to work for a company that, you know, values me and my gay black body <laughs> um, and people who look like me and is really committed to this vision of a more inclusive and accessible future for opera. And so thankful to have you here and your vision. Um, so thank you so much um, for being on the show, for sharing all of that with us. And everybody go to mnopera.org, check out the new season, subscribe, buy some tickets. Well, still single tickets aren't on sale yet, but subscribe do all that stuff <laughs> they, will be, <laughs> they will be they will be this summer okay. um and i'm sure we will have somebody on to talk about that then um but ryan thank you so much um for being thank here you. and i hope this isn't the last time me me too but happy happy anniversary oh thank you thank you we'll Aww. have to have you on thank for you. fire the cannon sometime we'll get in trouble <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't tell anybody i'm there just leave me in the corner until after <laughs> we have to go to our guest judge now <laughs> those voice disguisers guess who this is <laughs> something over my eyes or like the silhouette you know in the background That'll be funny. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Well, can't wait. And thank you again so much. And everybody stay tuned for Nina Yoshida Nelson, a singer and co-founder of the Asian Opera Alliance coming up after the break. We'll be right back.
everybody, we are back and we are joined by a very, very special guest, um, incredible mezzo-soprano, Nina Yoshida Nelson. Welcome to the show, Nina. <laughs> Thanks so, for having me. Oh, of course, of course. So for those of you who don't know, um, Nina is um, a performer who has been hailed as a powerhouse. Uh, achingly poignant. Um, her performances have uh, been called heartfelt, gripping, and for the past um, few years, few decades, um, she has been uh, performing in opera houses just around the country. Too many to name. We'll be here all day, but Atlanta, <laughs> Chicago, Sarasota. Notably, she made her debut um, at Chicago Lyric as Mama in Jack Perla's American, An American Dream uh, in 2019. Um, and this season, she will be singing um, at Boston Lyric Opera, Bard Opera, Opera Santa Barbara, um, Chicago Opera Theater, um, did I say Boston Lyric? Boston Lyric again. <laughs> um, again Kentucky, yep. uh, Kentucky Opera and um, the Rhode Island Philharmonic. Um, and one crazy stat um, that I, I saw when I was reading your bio is that you have been in 150 performances playing Suzuki in Madama Butterfly. That is <laughs> wild. <laughs> a lot. Sure um, but one of the reasons why we are so excited to have nine here today is that she is one of the co-founders of the Asian Opera Alliance and she is a proud advocate um, for Asians in the opera community so you know we are going to get into that because that is our jam <laughs> um, but Nina thank you so much for being here so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. So let's just dive in um, with, um, you know, a question about the Alliance. If you could talk to us, um, tell everybody out there a little bit about the Asian American, or sorry, the Asian Opera Alliance, um, what it is, how it started, and um, what the aim of the Alliance is. Yeah, um, so back in the spring when we all experienced those horrific crimes, the shootings in Atlanta, um, uh, we saw our Asian community start to really come together and um, speak out about hate and racism. And um, a lot of opera companies especially started making social media posts about how they support their um, Asian artists and whatnot. And um, I happened to be tagged in one of those posts with a certain company that I've worked at several times. Um, and I wrote to my friend who also works for this company and I said, take a look at this post. This is really great that we are being acknowledged and supported, but look at everybody who's been tagged in this post, almost if not everybody in the post was had were Asians who had been typecast into Asian specific roles. Mm. And, and I said, you know, I think the, the next step for opera when it comes to Asians is, is to stop pigeonholing us and typecasting us. And my friend who's not a singer, but works on the um, PR community engagement side, asked me, you know, in a, in a typical season, how many um, non-Asian specific roles do I play and compared to the Asian roles? And I went back and I myself knew that I had been typecast into roles, but I had no idea how much I'd been typecast. And um, I, I, I started counting. And like you said, I've done over 150 um, shows of Madame Butterfly. I've done, I think, seven world premieres of um, Asian identifying operas 
and multiple iterations of those. And in 10 years, I had done three non-Asian roles. Wow. And, and oh I'm my gosh. half Japanese. <laughs> so I was just kind of like, I was shocked myself. Um, and so I, I talked with my friend and I said, if I didn't even realize what was happening, how is anyone else supposed to realize? And how are we supposed to change this? So the two of us got together and then I called another friend of mine um, who he himself, uh, at the same time, there were a lot of like benefit concerts and whatnot. And um, he said to me, oh, Nina, you know, I don't understand why no one's calling me and asking me um, to, to participate in these concerts. And I, I said to him, you know, no one knows you're Asian because he's half Asian and he's tall, dark and handsome, very ambiguous, you know, ethnically. And I said, no one knows you're Asian. And he started thinking about this and realized that over the years, he had stayed as far away as possible from claiming the fact that he was born in Korea and that he's half Korean, specifically because he had never seen anybody um, in the opera industry really succeed as an Asian. And so the three of us got together and we decided it was time to start advocating. Um, and so uh, we, we started having meetings and talking about how we wanted to advocate and what was important and started reaching out to other Asians that we knew in, in the opera world. And, um, and together we came up with um, a, a quote unquote, call to action mm -hmm. that we um, sent to all the general direction, directors of opera companies in the United States, um, advocating for Asians um, in the opera industry, both on stage as far as, you know, in roles of all sizes and shapes, um, and also to stop pigeonholing us into Asian specific roles. We also wanted to advocate for, you know, more Asian representation off stage, in the boardroom, you know, in the administration. And um, so that, um, that letter went out July 22nd of the summer. And we've been just kind of plugging away ever since. You hinted um, at this a bit um, when talking about, especially the, the typecasting, that those stats are just mind blowing I mean, to me. Wild. Like. We, we know like it's a thing, of course, but just to have it in numbers like that, like mm -hmm. is, is really wild. Um, but I'm wondering what uh, do you think classical music organizations or opera companies uh, can do besides uh, stop typecasting <laughs> to support? <laughs> uh, what else can they do to support the careers of Asian artists in a more robust way? Well, I think, um, you know, another thing that, that I realized as I was looking around is um, I'm kind of one of the oldest, and I don't think I'm very old, Asian um, American opera singers out there. And so we've got a lot of young singers that are coming up, a lot. And um, one thing we need to do is we need to cultivate this young talent. We need to make sure that we're seeing, um, you know, representation in young artists programs, um, there already is a lot in conservatories, but somewhere between conservatories and main stage, we lose a ton of Asian artists. So mm. it's cultivating that in-between stage that really needs to happen. Also, I, you know, I firmly believe besides just stopping typecasting and pigeonholing, it, it takes being mindful about casting. Mm. 
it takes making sure that for a while we're really mindful until it becomes normal to see people of all shapes, sizes, colors on stage that reflect the way our world currently looks. Right now, we're not quite seeing that yet on the opera stage. Yeah, for for sure, right? And, you know, Paige and Rocky and I has, have as our professional functions, the responsibility to think through these kinds of things all the time. And you personally and others at the Alliance were really, really helpful in the conversations we had a few months ago and in, in helping us to really push ourselves in terms of some of the questions we were asking. And, and I feel like, you know, opera is really behind the curve with regards to progressive issues, right? Not to say that our cousins in the theater or the dance world have everything figured out, they clearly do not. But I'm curious if you have a perspective on why it is that maybe this has been such a challenging issue for us in opera. And, and maybe also if you could say a little bit about what activism might need to look like if we're going to combat that. Yeah, um, I think one of the reasons it, it's so it can be so difficult is because opera, um, you know, has been alive for centuries and we've been mm. doing productions for so long, right? And mm -hmm. oftentimes they're traditional productions. And, you know, you see things like Hamilton, which are, are really, you know, changing the way we imagine things. Yeah had been or whatever right and and reimagining and opera is just taking a longer time to get past those traditions and into um what our world looks like and who we are now and i think um it will be doing things like enough times where you have an asian um uh romeo and a hispanic juliet on stage in a traditional production, which is not what I grew up with and may be uncomfortable to some people for a little bit of time until then it becomes comfortable and normal, but it's taking, taking things that might be a little uncomfortable to some people and normalizing it. And I think that that's um, one thing that really needs to happen. It doesn't mean that we need to take all of our productions and change them and modernize them. Mm -hmm. There are ways to do that as well. And I think that would help. But even in traditional productions, I think it can happen. It just may make some people, some patrons, some you know, season ticket holders uncomfortable, but sooner or later it becomes comfortable. Yeah. Thank you. That's fantastic. Yeah. So one thing I'm I'm curious about um, when it comes to, you know, younger singers, singers who are coming up, um, what are some of the things that, you know, what are some adv advice that you would give to performers right now um, who are in the industry and are experiencing um, some of this glacial movement <laughs> <laughs> towards <Broadway. laughs> um, Advice that I, I love to give to younger singers is, that it's important to speak our truths and to speak up. I think for so long, um, I myself have been so worried about talking about my story and um, what the repercussions might be on my career if I do speak out about, I mean, I'm so thankful for Suzuki. She has provided many meals for my family <laughs> and has provided me with experiences to last a lifetime and joy and, and and relationships and I mean 
she's been a beautiful part of my life. However, it's really scary to come out there and say, look, this is, this is what my career has been. And with what the opera companies are doing to my career, it, that is racist. That is an actual racist thing to be hiring me only for Suzuki and nothing else. Amen. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Thank you <laughs> yeah. for naming that. Thank you. <laughs> it's scary. It's yeah. really scary. And like, even now, as I say it, I have chills because, because I'm in, you know, the height of my career and, and, but I've also learned how important it is to speak out because mm -hmm. For example, the first time I uh, spoke out about it on social media after I had kind of started helping form the Asian Opera Alliance, um, I kind of told the same story that I told you guys. And within um, a week, I had three offers for non-Asian roles. Mm. Wow. That already mm. in wow. one season doubles what I've done in the past 10 years. Wow. And then on top of that, I had two more offers for non-Asian roles. So this season, I'm doing five non-Asian roles and two Asian roles. And that's progress. And it comes from speaking out and from, and from creating awareness. That being said, next season, I'm scheduled only to do Asian roles so far. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so we're putting a Band-Aid on it. We're not making complete change yet. It's, uh, it's kind of status quo that you've spoken of that's been, you know, the thing for years and years and, you know, seen that, that hope with <laughs> having more, more non-Asian uh, roles than you did um, once. I wonder like in the last, oh gosh, I guess it's been like a year and a half now that things have been pretty tumultuous with multiple crises, you know, the, the pandemic with racial uprisings, with the horrible tragedy in Atlanta, like what have uh, things been like for Asian artists right now? And you, how do you think like the past couple years specifically have created unique opportunities or challenges? Um, yeah, great question. I am, um, so I had two Madam Butterflies that were canceled this season, mm -hmm. specifically because of the, um, you know, the worry about potential hypersexualization of a Japanese woman on stage with Madam Butterfly, and what what that might create. And um, so at first, I was really, really sad because um, you know these companies were saying we're we're trying to protect Asians and Asian women, and and we're trying by not producing this show right now. But when I looked at it, it seemed like what was happening was erasure. Mm. And like, mm -hmm. and, and, and being afraid of, you know, cancel culture and what might happen if they do do something. And I think it's really important that we do tell these stories, but with these stories comes education, right? And like, and having these difficult conversations. We can't just erase it and pretend like it never happened. We have to engage in the difficult conversations in order to create change. So um, I was really happy when Boston Lyric Opera um, decided to take their butterfly and um, turn it into a, a project they're calling the Butterfly Process, where they are um, hosting seven um, webinars on Madam Butterfly um, with discussions on anything from Orientalism to you know Puccini to um, having DEI conversations and what it looks like to be an Asian artist pigeonholed into 
everything that goes around with Madame Butterfly. And then they're taking that and turning that into an evergreen project, which will then um, live online for opera companies to reference forever and ever um, with talks about like traditional Japanese movement and costumes and what yellow face looks like and everything else that goes along with Madame Butterfly so that in futures, future productions, we will be able to produce a more responsible, socially responsible butterfly. So projects like that have popped up, which are exciting. And they're producing a concert called Uplifting Asian Voices. Mm. And we're, we're, um, we're really working to, you know, to, to create some type of impact. And I think this is really important. So things like that have been really exciting. Um, but, you know, I think we all know change takes time. <laughs> and a lot of it is just like chipping away one block at a time, right? In order to make, in order to create this change, this lasting change. That's really, really heartening to hear on this podcast a couple of months ago, maybe six, seven months ago, we actually were having a debate about whether or not it was even possible to produce a responsible butterfly at this point and sort of what it would take. So we are watching this process um, very, very intently. We were, you know, there's a production of Trimanesha with um, Volcano Theatre Company in Toronto, where they are, you know, taking a look at the libretto, the orchestrations, it's directed by a woman of color, and they're just sort of looking at everything again from a different lens. And I think that that's probably the way that we have to examine a lot of pieces, right? Like, what does it mean to sort of put in the hands of the person about whom the story is being told, right? That power to tell the story. So I find that very, very compelling personally. Um, but maybe we could pivot and put the story in your hands and hear you talk a little bit about what you have coming up, what work you are excited about, either that you are doing or that you're seeing in the field now. Well, um, I'm, you know, so right now I'm actually um, performing a role as a, um, a queen. And, um, okay. <laughs> like, <I know. laughs> and let me tell you, the pivot from being a secondary character to a leading lady is very strange for me. You know, I've played secondary <laughs> characters for 10 years plus now, and it's it's this real mind mindset change. But um, last night we had our first orchestra dress and um, I got a text from my cover today that it, it is, I'm going to read it to you because it literally, like, I think changed the way that I'm thinking about all this work that I'm doing. And it, it just touched my heart so much. Um, and she said, so, and she names a person, um, had her family with her in the audience tonight. And the daughter kept asking, mommy, when is the queen coming out again? Where is she? She loved you and your costumes. And it made me so happy thinking that a child who is not Asian is seeing this beautiful Asian woman on stage playing the role of queen. Aww. Aww. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. like, That's that just, yeah, it really kind of made me sit back and think how important what we're doing is and, yeah. and, and that it's going to change generations to come. So, um, you know, I think most exciting 
for me is doing this work that I never knew I was meant to do. And it kind of just fell in my lap. And I've had to learn a lot about activism and about advocating. I've had some amazing people who have, um, who have reached out to me and, and helped me. And, um, but sitting down with you know, Minnesota Opera, you were the first company to reach out to the Asian Opera Alliance and ask to have a meeting to discuss what we're trying to do. Um, but since then, we've, we've met with a lot of companies and I think people are really, really trying to make, make change. And I think that's super exciting, you know, working with Boston Lyric Opera and what they're doing is really exciting. Um, and, and just finding ways to tell these stories that are so important that we're telling. And then to make sure that this next generation of singers has it better than, than we had it, I think is, is all very exciting to me. Well, that brings a little light bulb sort of popped into my, <laughs> my head because I'm just so curious, you know, sending that letter out to every general director, um, of an opera company, you know, in the U.S., that's such a huge thing, such a huge, bold move. And, you know, it's so wonderful to hear about, you know, the changes, the positive changes that have, have already um, taken place. But have you met with any sort of resistance um, to, to, to any of your work? And what does that look like? <laughs> we definitely have. Um, and I'm sure there will be more to come. Um, we've um, actually, to tell you the truth, we sent out somewhere around 170 letters mm -hmm. and um, we had, I think 17 companies um, come back to us to even wow. acknowledge, wow. to even wow. acknowledge the fact that we had sent out this, it was called a, a call for change and 17, so 10%. Um, so within that, we are looking at what our next steps need to be in order to make sure that, that we're really being heard. Um, but we did have um, one company where a general director um, was not, was asking, you know, why are we always focusing on the negative? Why can't we focus on the positive? Oh, wow. um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we've had general directors talk about Asian representation in Asia or even in Europe um, and how much representation there is in Asia and Europe. Okay. Yeah, we are advocating for when we were trying to figure out, you know, this term Asian is so vast, right? And we have South Asian, East Asian, like there's just, it's not, you can't just say Asian and be done. You've got Asians from Asia, Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and when we were forming the Asian Opera Alliance, we were trying to figure out the best way to advocate for as many people as possible without it being super overwhelming. So what we decided was we were gonna advocate for Asians in the United States working in US opera houses. And so that's what we focus on specifically US mm -hmm. opera houses. And so when, you know, general directors come back and say, well, I've been to, you know, go see uh, the opera in China and there's lots of representation. <laughs> that doesn't help very many of us that are here working in the United States. So yeah. um, there has been some pushback and, and you know, one of the biggest things that we see is 
companies that say, okay, well, we will hire Asian singers singing um, Butterfly, Turndot, Pearl Fishers. And we come back and we say, that's great. But you also need to be hiring them to sing another role, either in a season before, a season after, or the same season. You can't just be pigeonholing them into, I mean, representation matters, right? We yeah. want to mm -hmm. see yeah. faces on the stage, but we need to see them in other roles as well. So um, that's the biggest pushback we get is, okay, well, we'll, we'll do Butterfly, but it, and it's going to be with Asians, but we may not hire them for other roles. So... You know, given the lack of diversity in the positions, the administrative positions that are actually making the decisions, like you can almost follow the, the like trail of illogic, right? And and I think that these things are so tied together, right? And I, I you know, think that we also just as an industry need to make much more of a coordinated push around thinking about who is in these decision-making seats, right? And what sort of experiences they have access to because I, the, the connection between the two is undeniable. Absolutely, it's the gatekeepers, right? Yeah. You know, and it, it kind of stops with these gatekeepers and it's until we get more diversity across the board um, that the, until then change won't really happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, turning it back, I guess, kind of to, to your to your journey and, you know, um, what has in, inspired you or rather who? It's the shout out moment. Uh, <laughs> do you have any uh, role models or or mentors uh, that you've come across in your career? Um, folks, especially, I think, mentors who are also Asian or of color. Um, and like, what did you admire about them? How? Yeah. How are they like for you? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, there are so few Asians in this in in our community that we we really stick close together, and um, and it's it's a pretty um, powerful connection that we all have. I, um, you know, am I'm not someone who has always quote unquote identified as Asian. I'm. I would identify as Southern Californian um, and <laughs> um, and a mom and a wife and whatever. But um, because I'm fourth generation Japanese American, there was not a lot of like Asian culture that was handed down to, to me. My grandparents were interned during World War II. And so at that point, it was kind of like um, you don't act Japanese. There's no Japanese names that are handed down. There's no it's like you're as American as possible and you just do good work, you're a good student, and you're, you're no longer Japanese, you're just American. And so um, for me, you know, a lot of my first role models were people when I was first being cast into Butterfly and like, what does this look like? What does it look like to be Asian? And so, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my first Butterflies were people who I really looked up to. Now, um, once the Asian Opera Alliance started, um, Phil Chan, who wrote the book, Final Bow for Yellowface, um, and he's been um, changing the ballet world for the past five years um, and specifically working with um, the Nutcracker and um, addressing that the Chinese dance that's in the Nutcracker and how can we change this to, um, to, not, be, to not be racist anymore. And so he reached out to me um, and said, look, I'm so happy to have the Asian Opera Alliance here because I've been fielding a lot of these questions 
in the opera world too. And as much as I love opera, ballet is where I belong. And so he has been teaching me a lot about what it means to be an advocate for Asians and what it means to, to speak up and to speak out and to sit, stand tall and, and strong and proud. And, and um, so he's, I'd, I'd say my biggest mentor right now, um, watching everything he's accomplishing is just incredible. Well, so we're sitting here right now in the Twin Cities, which, you know, everybody knows is sort of this global epicenter for this movement for, for racial justice. And, you know, one of the ways that we all know that white, excuse me, white supremacy flourishes is by taking all of the constituent groups of the people of the global majority, the black <laughs> folks, the Asian <laughs> folks, the Latin folks, the Middle Eastern folks, um, the indigenous folks, and pitting us all against each other. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, in this particular moment, what does, what do those, um, those other um, activist movements, Black Lives Matter, um, for instance, the Black Opera Alliance, for instance, um, you know, what role have they played or how have they inspired um, your activism as well? Um, I think one of the things that, that we at the Asian Opera Alliance were so inspired by was, was seeing the results of the, the Black Opera Alliance and seeing the way they came together and, and the way they were creating change in just a year mm -hmm. and, and really, um, really meaningfully stepping out there and, and saying some really hard stuff but getting great results. And so I think that was one of our, you know, our inspirations when we, when we founded the Asian Opera Alliance was looking at them and, and, and seeing um, that it is possible. And, and the first step is just talking about it mm -hmm. and, yeah. and bringing it to light. And then we can go from there. And so seeing that um, was really inspirational to us. Um, but I agree. I think there's a lot of like pitting different racial groups against each other. And there is yet to be a talk about what true diversity looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, that's coming. Um, I think that there's, it, it should be a rainbow, right? It should be, mm -hmm. it should be, we should look up on that stage and see representation of everybody that we see in our world. And, and I think opera companies right now are, are, you know, are still scared to make those changes and still scared to just to, to meaningfully say, okay, for a while, I'm going to really purposefully cast in such a way. Um, but, you know, we have gotten several emails that say, well, look at our diversity. We're so diverse, yet we don't, you know, from 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 <laughs> opera companies that say, look, look what we're doing compared to like two years ago. We have so much more diversity now, yet there's not a single Asian singer in their whole season. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that that that's the next step for some of these companies that are are really are trying to make change is is the talk about what diversity actually is. Yeah, that is a, a, a huge point, right? I, I feel like if you are looking at a production on stage and what you see does not actually look like what the world looks like, 
then there is a failure somewhere, right? And, and I think we have to start using these really stark terms to send the message that we are not happy with the pace and that it is not satisfactory and simply saying this is better than how terrible it truly was five minutes ago is not really the answer, right? Um, right. And I will say that I know that we have um, other general directors and artistic directors who listen to this podcast hopefully they're fans of it and they're not listening in, in abject terror <laughs> but while <laughs> while you have um their ear and you know before we let you go this has been a really extraordinary and provocative um set of things that you've said are there any perspectives you want to leave those folks with? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, Asian Opera Alliance hosted a, a Zoom meeting recently, um, and uh, it was a place where we could talk about what it's like to be Asian in our in our opera industry. And there was a general director who sat in, um, one general director who did sit in on our our, um, our Zoom meeting. And afterwards, uh, several of us said, can you imagine what it would be like if every single general director from opera companies in the United States had sat in on that hour and a half talk about what it's like to be an Asian artist in the United States? I think one of the um, scariest things as an artist myself um, is the fact that I may, there's, since I don't have a job where I'm hired nine to five and I am tenured or whatever, I'm always looking for my next job. And I'm, I'm at a place for a month and then I leave and I'm at another place for a month and I leave. I may make a little bit of change in that time that I, I may like have some type of influence, but rarely do we have these relationships with general directors or people who are running these opera companies, rarely do they come to us and ask our honest opinions of what's happening. And rarely do we feel safe enough to then give our opinions to them. So I think, um, you know, having an open mind, knowing that the Asian Opera Alliance, we're here as a resource for others, we want to work together. I think same with the Black Opera Alliance. I think, you know, in general, we, we're all here because we love this art form and we want to see it thrive. But, you know, it can't just thrive with a few people running everything. It really has to be a movement where we're all involved. And I think that's like, come to us, talk to us. We're here. We're excited to work together. I think that's a, it would be a great collaboration. <laughs> Yes, it would. So speaking of resources and learning more about y'all and talking to y'all, if people want to get involved or learn more about the Asian Opera Alliance, um, where can they go? Uh, you can find us on Instagram and on Facebook, Asian Opera Alliance. Uh, we have a website, AsianOperaAlliance.com. You can email us at AsianOperaAlliance at gmail.com. But um, I think we're all an open book and any of us are happy to, to get together and, and talk with, with companies. 
And those links, of course, will be in the show notes, everybody. Um, but if people want to learn more about you and where to, to uh, see, come see you perform, hear your beautiful voice, where can people find out more about you, Nina? Um, my website, ninayoshidanelson.com, um, is a great place to start. I'm also very active on both Instagram and Facebook. So you'll find a lot of pictures of my kids there. <laughs> pictures and uh, some puppy pictures probably too. <laughs> nice, nice. And we will have those in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much for being here. We enjoyed this conversation so much like lee said it was so provocative but informative and we just so admire the work that you all are doing um and we hope that we can do this again sometime yeah. <laughs> yeah. thank you thank you for the work that you're doing it's 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 really powerful all right well thank you once again nina yushida nelson everyone go check out um asian opera alliance um go check out nina's page go see her when she's performing this spring and we will be right back All right, we are back. Oh my goodness. Want to thank Nina Yoshida Nelson one more time. Also Ryan Taylor for being here. And I know we're running long, so we're going to do a really quick pure, well, a really quick, uh, a three, a two, a one. I hit it. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time is peanut butter jelly time. Oh, hey. Ooh, that's like the sourdough remix. Uh-huh. <laughs> One day I'll do a chopped and screwed version for you. <laughs> do a Dirty South remix. <laughs> well, speaking of down south, um, my little bit of pure black joy today. Uh, the first part acknowledges. <clears throat> a close personal friend and head of mine, Miss Beyonce Giselle Knowles, for oh, her first yes. ever Oscar nomination. Yes, absolutely. Yes. How did we not mention this before? Child, it's been a lot happening in the world. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. That is true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> but for those of you who didn't see the nominations or who are living under a rock, Beyonce was nominated for her song Be Alive, which was co-written by Dixon. It's from the movie King Richard, which is, of course, a biopic about the great Venus and Serena Williams and their family. Um, I will just also want to point out really, really briefly that Anjanu Ellis, who plays their mom in the yes. movie, was nominated for supporting actress. Anjanu Ellis has been one of my favorite actresses since I first saw her on stage as a college student. So I'm super excited to see her here too. If you don't know, shame on you, Google her and be blessed by her talent. So a big congratulations to both of those multi-talented ladies super excited we'll be rooting for you and we'll be protesting if you don't win so there you go <laughs> and shout out to will and denzel as well 
Oh, one. yeah, obviously. <laughs> 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 you know what? That makes me think real quick, y'all. When a, a real quick extra pure black joy nugget, when Michaela, um, oh gosh, I'm losing her name now. She's on Pose. She was the first black oh, Rodriguez. to win. Yes. MJ Rodriguez. Thank you, yes. MJ Rodriguez. Yes. 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 Another favorite actress of mine. Absolutely. I loved you in Little Shop of Horrors if you're listening, Michaela. Yes, me too. Oh my gosh, you did that, girl. Oh my god, I was so happy for her because yes. her character on Pose has yes. just been, ugh, like a character. Like when people look back on characters and shows they remember of their generation, like she's yeah. gonna be one. Blanca, Absolutely. Evangelista, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and on a show where there were so many extraordinary performances by actors and actresses of color. Um, that is one that absolutely stood out. And if you don't know about Pose, shame on you and get on Google because like, it's a damn been? good show. Right. Where you been? <laughs> <laughs> What's the problem? I mean, it's on Netflix, right? Is it it's still? on Netflix. It's on Hulu. It's yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Widely. Netflix. Or you can just Widely. come to my house and we'll watch it together. Like, <laughs> whatever you want to do. <laughs> well, I don't think we need any more Pure Black Joy as soon as you mention Beyonce. but shout out to all those folks and uh thank you once again to our guests um as usual please rate review subscribe on apple or spotify or wherever you get your fine podcasts um five star reviews only Thank you. Solamente. Three, four, five. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> and uh, subscribe and, you know, tell all your friends about us. And please uh, feel free to write in with any comments, thoughts, concerns, I guess. And whatever. Could they be concerned about? I don't know. Maybe that we're just too good and too fun. (laughs) (laughs) Too good looking. (laughs) Too sauce. That sounds about right. (laughs) Too much sauce on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's it. Bye. 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 We'll see you in two weeks. Bye.